Hello everyone. Good day, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the 58th live episode of the Ask Abhijit show. So as you know, today is an interactive episode. I'm going to be taking your questions from the live chat. So let's see who all we have today. Who all is there with us right now? Vaibhav Jain, Leluch, Arjun, Aditi Sengupta, Pundrik, Shubhankari, Anurag, Aditi, Mayank, Sampriti, Zoro, Dhiraj, Samarth, Lone Wolf, Lovdeep Singh, Harshit, Palab, Sahil Kamle, Prachi, Karthik, Rishabh Singh, Mahesh Patil, Kumarjit, Rakshit, Chiching, Prabal, Lovdeep, Prachi, Tanushri, Karthik, Khosrao, Tanmay, uh, Harshit Saini, Aryan Kumar, Karthik Shrinivas, Bharat, Gagan, Rathor Vik, Vivekananda, Meera, Karthik, Tanmay, and then many, many more people. Good evening, good day, wherever you are. Very nice to see you all. Thank you so much for being here. So today, like I said, is going to be an interactive session. I'm going to take all your all your questions from the live chat right now. So let's see what questions you have asked thus far. Uh, let us take a look at the questions that are there thus far. Mm, let's see, what do we have? Okay, this is an interesting question by Khusro Anushiravan. What is, what is your view on me and Justinian, our relationship with India? So I'm assuming that you mean the, the Persian Sasanian king Khusro Anushiravan. I think he, he ruled Persia, I think in the 6th century AD. In the middle of the 6th century AD, I think he his reign was quite long. He ruled for 40-50 years, I think, if I'm not mistaken. There, something like that, approximately. And he is considered to be one of the greatest uh, kings of Persia, of Iran. And uh, he did enter into significant conflicts with the Byzantine Empire, which is the Eastern Roman Empire, whose capital was Byzantium or Constantinople, present-day Istanbul in Turkey. So, uh, and I think that uh, the conflict which he had with the uh, Byzantine Empire lasted for quite a while. It was an ongoing conflict. Most likely, it uh, the conflict went on beyond Khosrow's death. So, yeah, that's what I can remember right now. Um, he is considered to be one of the greatest kings. He was, a, he was, he is considered to be a philosopher king. He was a big patron of the arts and the literature and literature and all that philosophy, etc. And if I'm not mistaken, he also did enter into a conflict with the Heptalite Empire, which is the Shweta Hunas, the White Huns, who did uh, rule certain parts of northern India at that time in the sixth century AD. So he did enter into a conflict with the Heptalites and I think he was able to defeat them to, to a certain extent. In an alliance with another Turkic confederation, I think it was the Gok Turks. So that's what I recall right now off the top of my head about uh, Khosrow. Justinian was the emperor of the Byzantine, was the Byzantine Empire, emperor at the time. And yeah, these two did enter into a significant conflict. They had they had a ceasefire. Then the ceasefire was broken again, either either by Khosrow or by Justinian. I don't remember right now. But yeah, it's a very interesting chapter of history. And Khosrow is one of the most significant kings of Persia in the first and second millennium AD. 
I think uh, he was so great that later kings of Persia took on the title of Khusro just to bask in some of the reflected glory. And what relationship did he have with India? I'm not sure about his relationship with India. Did he have any significant relationship with India? At the time, certain parts of northern India were ruled by the were under attack or were ruled by the Heptalites, the Shweta Hunas, the White Huns. And I think this was the period of the Gupta Empire in India, more or less, approximately. And I'm not sure what sort of relationship was there between the between the Sasanian Persians and the Gupta Empire of India. But it's something that, uh, yeah, I, should, I think I can look up and maybe speak about if I find something interesting. As far as, as I recall, uh, Khosrow's major camp- campaigns were to the west of Persia with the Ottoman Empire. He conquered parts of the, uh, sorry, the, the Byzantine Empire and he conquered parts of uh, territories that belonged to the Byz- Byzantines. He, I think he was able to go and bathe in the Mediterranean Sea because of his conquests and so on. So he's a very interesting figure, uh, interesting figure in history and certainly something that uh, people can study if it interests them. So interesting question to start off with. Tanushri asks, can you tell us about the government of the Harappan civilization? So you see the Harappan it was not a separate civilization. It was one phase, one era of India's civilization. So what was the government like is the question. Well, what do we know about the Harappan phase of our civilization? We know whatever we know from the archaeological record. So we haven't been able to decipher the script yet. And that is the reason why we don't know much about this phase of our civilization. We don't know what these cities and towns were called. We call them Harappa, Mohenjadaro, Rakigari, etc. But these are names we have given to these cities today. We don't know what these cities were called 5,000 years ago. So we have lost lost that information. Uh, So we haven't been able to decipher the script thus far because mostly because nobody has really taken a significant interest and done it seriously. But what do we know about the government? We don't know anything about the government because we don't have any uh, records from the time. We haven't been able to decipher the script. But from the archaeological record, what we find is that there were no royal palaces. There were no royal palaces there. The largest and most prominent buildings were public buildings, like um, like the meeting hall, the town hall, the city hall, the, the great bath the storehouses of grains and all. So this tells us that there was no monarchy there. It was kind of a democratic government. That's what it looks like. Because in a democracy, the major buildings, the most prominent buildings are the buildings that are in service of the people. Today in India, the grand buildings of the government are the parliament building and things like that. Right? We don't have royal palaces and, on, and so on. I mean, that's what we find throughout India's history. We hardly ever find any royal palace or any anything like that. So in the Harappan phase of our civilization, we did not have any royal palaces. The greatest buildings were the public buildings. So it looks like there was a form of democracy that was prevalent at the time. So that's what we can say. And there is a total absence of warfare. You don't find any evidence of battles or warfare or arms or any such thing. It was it is very clear that this was a very peaceful phase of our history and it clearly looks like there was some form of democracy 
that was the form of governance so that's what we can tell from the information and the data that we have at hand thus far okay let's take some of the questions tanmay asks chanakya or sunzu whose wisdom was more powerful so that's an interesting question see uh, when you come when it comes to vishnugupta chanakya his wisdom is available in that great book the arthashastra which is all about how to govern a very large kingdom or empire so it deals with everything it deals with tax, taxation it deals with governance it deals with the administration it deals with the duties duties of the kings of of the king the duties of the various officials it deals with statecraft with spycraft with tradecraft it deals with geopolitics it deals with warfare conflict it deals with how to spy on uh, your enemies even on your own people in order to maintain law and order and, and in order to find out the who, those who are antinationals etc and so on it is an encyclopedia of governance and statecraft and geopolitics and all that when it comes to sun tzu his treatise is called the art of war it is simply a set of stratagems it's not even a set of strategies it's a set of stratagems which are certain aphorisms or or uh, pieces of of uh, nuggets of wisdom that can be applied in essentially in warfare but then that they can also be applied in business and in various activities that involve competition between various parties so sun tzu's uh, work is more uh, it is more focused on warfare which also has significant applications in business etc but chanakya's work is encyclopedic it is far more than simply how to uh, engage in warfare so i would say that vishnugupta chanakya's work is far greater it has it has a far greater scope then the limited scope which is the uh, game theory conflict and all that of sun tzu's work so these have different applications and different contexts but vishnugupta chanakya's work is timeless it is far larger in scope than the work of sun tzu we don't even know if sun tzu was a real person but let's just assume that he was so that in short is the answer okay rahul pal says can ispa change india's space program i can't remember what is the full form of ispa let me just quickly t- take a look what's ispa indian society indian space association is it indian space association so i think it is a consortium of various companies private companies etc Uh, that are involved or are getting involved in space so i think it's a very good thing and uh, it's good if private companies and private operators were to join the space program get involved in it uh, the more the merrier we need to create an entire ecosystem technological ecosystem that uh, feeds and supports the space program we can't keep relying on just one organization isro to do everything i mean look at the way things are evolving in the us today earlier i mean just 20 years ago you you only had one major operator which was nasa and uh, today you have uh, blue origin you have space x of course 
and you have the United Launch Alliance, which is a, another private operator. It's a consortium and so on. So NASA doesn't have to do everything on their own. They can outsource work to these other companies. They can even, uh, have, I mean, have, give contracts to SpaceX, etc., to launch cargo sub supplies and even astronauts into space and so on and so forth. So it's always good if you have multiple players in the scene in your country. So I think it can certainly, if it is nurtured properly and it is, if, if the regulation and all, if, if it is all sorted out, then it can certainly give a very big boost and fill it to the Indian space program, which we certainly need. Because I don't see, I mean, ISRO is, ISRO is controlled by the government. And that is, I think, the primary reason why we don't see too much innovation happening in ISRO. ISRO is a bunch of brilliant scientists, no doubt about it. They are very capable. But do you do we see them developing new rockets more powerful rockets no we keep on launching the same couple of rockets for the past 10 years the pslv and various iterations of the gslv very slow iterative uh, improvements are being done to the gslv the last test did not work out very well unfortunately i hope the next one works fine but we are not seeing quantum leaps in our capabilities the GSLV is, what's the capability? I think it's about 5,000 kilos, 5 tons or so to low Earth orbit. That's the kind of payload approximately that it can uh, take to low Earth orbit. I think we need to significantly boost these capabilities. We need to build more powerful rockets. I mean, today, if you want to send a spacecraft to the moon, you can't even do it in one shot. You need to keep, uh, uh, you know, put the spacecraft in Earth's orbit and then keep raising the orbit time of one step at a time. It takes two or three months to reach the moon. But if the if you have a more powerful rocket, you can reach the moon in 20, 48 to 72 hours. Just a straight shot. So we don't have rockets with that kind of power as of today. So why is it not being done? Do we not have the capability? Of course we have the capability to do that. But you need government approval to do this. And that's not happening. Why are we not developing uh, uh, reusable rockets? Why aren't we developing the rockets that uh, the rocket boosters that can land autonomously on their own, own and can be reused? Why not? Will that not cut down the cost of space uh, launches significantly? That's what SpaceX has done. So why isn't that being done? It's not because the scientists aren't capable of doing that. It's because the government... <laughs> is not allowing to do them. Maybe it's a lack of budget or, or lack of approvals. I don't, know, I don't know what it is. So it is very important that private players get involved in the space program. And when you have a private player, with, uh, then you see a lot of innovation happening. So and if you, Especially if you have a lot of competition. So I think the ISPA is a good step, but it still remains to be seen in what direction it goes. But it is very important that India develops and enhances, augments its uh, space capabilities significantly in the next decade or two. Because the future is space. The countries, the two or three countries, nations that will lead the world in space exploration in the 21st century are the two or three countries that will control and, and uh, drive the direction of the world. That's how it is. That's how it's going to be. So that's why India needs to wake up and and take its space capabilities to the next level quickly. Right. Okay. Let's take a look. Uh, many of the questions I can see have been answered before. Let's take something different. What is my view of a certain book? Well, I haven't read that book. So, 
and some questions are being repeated. Okay, this is a question by Harshit Saini. Will a third wave of Corona come? I think only the media can create a third wave of the Corona, of the coronavirus. Uh, you, you know which organizations those are, which would like to say the government do very badly and fail. I'm not going to take names, but yeah, certain sections of the Indian media are always overjoyed when something bad happens to India, and they are the ones who will try and create a new wave of Corona. Thus far, we have more than 1 billion uh, vaccinations done in India, and it's still going on very strongly. So I don't see why there should be a third wave of Corona. When Within a few months, I think a significant percentage of the Indian population will be fully vaccinated, and therefore they will be immune to the virus. And once you reach a certain threshold of the population, which is immune to the virus, there's no chance of a new wave of the pandemic happening. So if it happens, it will be a media creation. They will try and cherry pick certain data points and try and present that to the public as a new wave or something. I do not see any such thing happening. India has surpassed all expectations in the way the pandemic has been handled, in the way the uh, governance, government infrastructure has been used to vaccinate people very efficiently, very rapidly. It's incredible how it's how it's happened. The the foreign media, the American media, a few months ago was was going overboard and predicting that millions of Indians will die of the coronavirus pandemic because India's uh, ability to vaccinate people is very, very poor, etc. Well, today they are all quiet and they're hiding in some corner somewhere. So I don't see any such thing happening. I think we are past the coronavirus pandemic very soon. We're going to be past it very soon. And we need to look forward and move on as a nation and build, 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 build. All right. Okay, Love Panda says... As Elon Musk said, to make Mars as hot as Earth, we have to nuke Mars. Is it possible to nuke Mars? Will it give the same result as it gives on Earth? My views. I have answered this question a couple of times, but it's, it's, it's a fun question. So let's take it up. See, Elon Musk is not crazy. Uh, he did say that we should nuke Mars and all. That's called humor. <laughs> it's humor. Nobody in their right mind, would actually go ahead and nuke Mars. If you actually want to send people there, you don't want all that radiation flying around in the atmosphere, right? And a nuclear blast is something that you can't really control. I mean, you can control the um, the yield, the output and all that, depending on the weapon that you have. But that is not the right way to do things. It's going to create a whole chain of uh, downstream effects that cannot be foreseen or controlled. So that is not the way to nuke Mars. And even if you nuke the North and South Pole of Mars, wherever you have all these ice caps and all, it's not going to raise the temperature all the way to the, uh, the kind of temperatures we have on Earth. It's going to melt some of the water, some of it, and it, it's not really going to be so effective. So terraforming Mars, if it ever happens in the future, is going to be a project that will last several centuries. It won't happen in a year or two or in a decade or two. And I don't know if we will ever be able to reach the stage where we can do that because it will take the kind of uh, technological capabilities, industrial capabilities that we don't have today. So nuking Mars is humor. He, Nobody is serious when they talk about nuking Mars. I mean, nobody in the right mind would be seriously considering detonating nuclear bombs on Mars. I mean, that's not the way to do, do this. 
uh, is it possible to nuke Mars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If somebody is crazy enough and they are, they can reach Mars, they can do it, sure. But it will not give the results you want. Because, see, the most powerful nuclear weapon ever tested was the Tsar Bomba. I think it had a, a yield of 50 megatons of TNT. 50 megatons, I think it was, yeah. And uh, so even if you use that to nuke the the poles of Mars, I don't know whether it will be able to actually melt all the ice that is there because the heat dissipates very quickly in the atmosphere, you know. So I don't think it's really uh, something that's even worth doing. Terraforming is a different, it's a, it's a long-term strategy and maybe concentric mirrors in orbit around Mars or something like that needs to be considered once we have the capabilities. So those are my views about nuking Mars. Okay, let's take some more questions. This is an interesting question by Sahil. We are reaching 8 billion people. What's the maximum population Earth can hold? I think we are already past the maximum population that we can sustainably hold on the planet because, you know, a hundred years ago, um, more than 90% of the biomass on the planet was wild animals. Today, more than 90% of the biomass on the planet, animal biomass, is domestic animals, cattle, livestock, etc. for human consumption. So we have already wiped out most of the wild animals that you have on the planet. We are causing so much deforestation just to keep just to keep on sustaining the, the human population on the planet. And the Western nations, they are so fond of eating meat. And animal agriculture is the biggest cause of pollution and deforestation on the planet. People are deforesting the Amazon uh, jungle to plant soybean plantations to feed those cattle, the cows that the Americans and other countries uh, slaughter millions of cows and other animals every year. Millions or billions of it, I'm not sure. So this is extremely uh, harmful to the environment. And uh, this is not sustainable. I think 8 billion is, is really, we are reaching the breaking point. I, we may even reach 10 billion in a few, in a couple of decades or so, if the population growth rate goes on the way it, it is going on right now. So it is a very big problem. We need to find ways of slowing down the population growth. And uh, we need to especially the Western nations, the first so-called first world nations, they need to stop consuming so much meat. So that, these are the challenges challenges we're facing. I don't know what is the maximum population Earth can the Earth can hold. I'm sure it can go on for some time, but then you will reach a phase when something is going to go wrong and, you know, things will go really badly wrong and you will see massive depopulation events of some kind. I mean, nature will fight back at some point in time. So I think we are going in the wrong direction. Something needs to be done urgently in the next two, three decades. Uh, and of course, you cannot cut down or cull the population. We are human beings. Everybody has human rights and all. But what we can do is to cut down the growth rate of populations. So something like a two-child policy or something, something like that needs to be enforced maybe worldwide for a few decades. You know, something like that. So people need to, the leaders need to come up with viable solutions that don't violate basic human rights in any way or form. But certainly this is a huge challenge. 
So something needs to be done for sure. What do I think about the Tamil language? I think it's a wonderful language. Right, let's take some more questions. Bidanta asks, why is there very less information available about the kings and dynasties of the Mahajanapada time period, about their administrative style, social structure, economic structure, etc. We had all the information in the written form in all our great universities. India, a thousand years ago, India was a land of universities. You had dozens of great universities like Nalanda, Takshashila, Vikram Shilav, Tilhara, Odantapuri, and so on and so forth, all across the length and the breadth of the country. And then the Turkic invasions happened and all these universities were destroyed and all the libraries were burned. And that is why all of our historical records were destroyed. And that is why there is so little information about all these kings and dynasties of the Mahajanapadas, of the Vedic age. We don't even know the names of the great cities of the Saptasindhu region. Today we call them Harappa and Mohenjadaro and Kalibanga and Rakigari, etc. These are modern names of these places. We don't know what they were called 5,000 years ago. So we have lost all of this information. The administration, the social structure, economic structure, the names of the kings and dynasties, etc. And some records still exist. For example, you have the Rajatarangiri of Kalhana, in which you have these very old uh, records of lineages, of dynastic lineages, etc. But historians say that this is all mythology. It's all made up and it is not quite historically accurate and so on and so forth. We do still have many of these old lineages, the records of these lineages in various such texts like the Raj Tarangini of Kalahana, etc. But historians refuse to take these seriously. And that's why we are not taught about these and so on and so forth. Right? And even though we have the names of the lineages and the kings and all, we don't know in exactly in which which year they reigned and what was the city. We are not able to map the names of those cities to actual geographical locations. I mean, for in, for instance, you have the kingdom of Odiyana uh, that uh, was there during the Mahajanapada's period, but we don't know where it was. Was it was it in the Swat Valley? Was it in Central India? No one knows today because we have lost all these records. So all these. Uh, records need to be looked at, whatever information is available through these ancient records like the Raj Tarangini, etc. And we need to try and find ways of mapping these records to actual time periods and so on and so forth. Lots of historical research needs to be done. And because it has not been done, that's why there is no information available at hand. So essentially what I can say is that India's so-called historians have not done their job. They need to be sacked. What can I say about the Razakars of Hyderabad? Terrorists. That's what they were. I don't know anything. Daudi Bohra community. I don't know anything about them. Sorry. I, I haven't studied their history because, well, I have had other things to do. <laughs> Okay, uh, can Iran be used to isolate Pakistan globally as it also has access to Afghanistan and Central Asia and also oil? Well, actually it is Iran that is being isolated globally. Right now the Americans 
are doing their best to isolate Iran. And it's not working because the Chinese are getting involved in the mix and they are now entering into an alliance with Iran. There is this uh, this accord or pact that the Iran and China have signed worth, uh, I don't know, tens of billions of dollars. It's a 20, 30 year pact or something like that that they've signed recently. So it is not possible for the Americans to isolate Iran because China will use that to their advantage. Now, who wants to isolate Pakistan globally? We want to do that, but the Americans have never been really willing to cooperate in that. They have always wanted to support Pakistan or use Pakistan in some way or the other, whether it is in the Afghanistan uh, arena or somewhere else, or, or in the past, the Americans have used Pakistan against India. And now the Chinese are doing that. They are using Pakistan to keep India off balance. So it's not really possible to isolate Pakistan globally. Now, is Iran interested in isolating Pakistan? The Iranians don't really have a very good relationship with the Pakistanis. It's a Shia-Sunni issue. It's a very basic, fundamental issue, deep-rooted issue. So Iran and Pakistan can never be really good friends. In the past, the Iranians have actually sided with Pakistan from time to time against India. Uh, like in the 1971 war, the Iranians offered support to Pakistan. They allowed the Pakistanis to, I think it was in the 1965 war or 1971, I don't remember which one, but in one of these wars, the Pakistanis were able to fly their uh, aircraft and park them in Iran so that they would not be destroyed by the Indian Air Force. So the Iranians allowed the Pakistanis to do that. And even recently, the Iranians allowed Pakistan to kidnap an Indian businessman, Kulbushan Jadav, from Iranian territory and take him to Pakistan. So, you know, it's it's a complicated issue. The Iranians are not really our friends. And Pakistan is our sworn enemy. The Chinese are our sworn enemy. And all of these games are going on. So it's not really possible to isolate Pakistan as such. As long as the Chinese support Pakistan, you can't isolate Pakistan. And even the Americans are kind of uh, using Pakistan from time to time. Even now, they are using Pakistan for drone strikes in Afghanistan and so on. I mean, I heard the news a week or so ago that there is something going on. The Americans are using Pakistan as a staging staging area for launching drone strikes into Afghanistan. So it's not really possible to isolate Pakistan. The only solution is the final solution, which is to uh, break Pakistan up into smaller territories. Uh, Pashtunistan should go back to Afghanistan. Sindh should become free. Balochistan should become free. Punjab should become a, a separate nation and so on. And the ISI and the Pakistan army need to be disbanded and, and dealt with. So that is the solution that India needs to accomplish in the next 5 to 10 years if we want to have long-lasting peace on the western border. And once that is accomplished, then we can focus our full energies on the bigger threat to the north in Tibet, which is China. So that's what I can say about this. Pawan says, why do the so-called woke people do their environment awareness campaign only during Hindu festivals? Because the ultimate aim is to eradicate Hinduism, wipe out Hinduism and turn India into, into a rootless nation, which Actually, you can see that succeeding to, succeeding to some level, especially among the very young. When you have, when you when you look at uh, the teenagers and the early twenty-year-old people and all, they are quite rootless. 
and they are very strongly influenced by all this so called woke propaganda so called liberal propaganda because it's it sounds very good it sounds very pro environment it sounds so pro human rights so all that and hinduism is portrayed as a very negative very regressive backward patriarchal misogynistic casteist etc religion and therefore it is so easy to influence the youngsters especially into hating hinduism and they can then be recruited because of the education system into all these campaigns and activities that are anti hindu and uh, that's why so the basic premise of all this woke nonsense is hindu phobia the agenda is to destroy hinduism and the bigger agenda is to turn india into a rootless nation so that people can be influenced very easily into buying all kinds of things so india they want to treat india as a huge market it's all about making money at the end so if you can break down society break down the social structure destroy the family system of support then you can influence minds very easily because everybody is isolated and they can be bombarded by advertising messages and they will buy whatever you want them to buy look at america it's a consumer culture if 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 you're feeling sad or depressed go and do some retail therapy go buy expensive items and it will make you feel bad uh, feel good for a few hours yeah like taking a dose of drugs so that's what they have reduced their population to and that's what they want to do in india as long as you have a strong culture and civilization and strong strong social cohesion then it's very hard to influence you into buying things that you don't need so they want to destroy the indian social structure indian culture they want to make everyone rootless and they want to uh, encourage the so called independence uh, of every person and individualism because that is the is is the key to influencing people so make your own decisions don't don't listen to your elders don't listen to your family make your own decisions be independent be strong and then listen to our ad campaigns and buy whatever we tell you to buy that is the thing so the key to that is to destroy hinduism and destroy indian culture and that is why all these environment awareness campaigns are doing are done during hindu festivals diwali is bad bursting firecrackers is terrible for the environment and don't uh, hurt animals whereas other festivals so called festivals you will not talk about that you know so that's so that's the thing they want to destroy hinduism so we need to resist that and it's not just the woke people it's the indian institutions and politicians too who are involved in this and sports people i mean the job the role that a sports person plays in society is that of an entertainer and that's it so we need to stop putting these people on these huge pedestals a sports person is an entertainer a bollywood person is an entertainer do you know what vishnu gupta chanakya said about entertainers do you know what the arthashastra says about entertainers it says tax them heavily and relegate them to the margins of society do not treat them in any way as role models so we need to heed our ancient wisdom and stop putting these people on pedestals choose your heroes wisely all right next question tanmay tanmay says uh please elaborate about the israel palestine conflict and the position of bharat in that jai hind while well, it's a old conflict 
the region of Israel was the original homeland of the Jewish people. We know that. That's part of history. Uh, about 3,000 years ago or thereabouts, they had this uh, Jewish kingdom, Solomon's kingdom. They had the great temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Yerushalayim. It's a Jewish city. And later the uh, you had the Arabic conquest of this region and the Jews were expelled and all that. There were massacres, I'm sure. There were lots of them. And it became uh, an Arabic-speaking territory. And the culture, religion, everything changed. And they called it Philistine or Palestine. And in the 1940s, Israel was cre- recreated over there. The Jewish people found their homeland again. And that's how this, this Israel-Palestine conflict began and it's been smoldering ever since and India's position in that has always been pro-Palestine ever since the time of the Congress party's regime and rule over India India has always supported Palestine I think the uh, India established its diplomatic relations with with Israel I think quite late in the day there was a long time when India and Israel did not have formal uh, diplomatic relations. India had not recognized, I think, the state of Israel. And India has always had this record of uh, supporting Palestine on international forums, uh, voting in favor of Palestine and against Israel in the UN and so on and so forth. It's only in uh, very recent times that India has become, uh, India has warmed its relationship with Israel. Today, I think India has a very, uh, has a much better, much warmer relationship with Israel and I think it's a good thing. I mean what do we, what does India what has India ever gained from supporting Palestine? It's all about the national interest. You have to align your diplomatic uh, movements and uh, relationships in, in in favor of your national interest. So what did India ever gain by supporting Palestine? I do not see anything that India ever gained by doing that. By supporting and aligning with Israel, we gain a lot. We get, uh, we gain a good, a very strong ally, a very capable ally. We are able to uh, cooperate in this sphere, in the military sphere, in the technological sphere, in the uh, in the cyber domain, and so much more. And we can share intelligence. We can. Uh, align our geopolitical interests also, which are significantly in convergence and so on and so forth. So the position that we have now taken and we are now aligning towards that is very much pro-Israel and it is the right direction. So I'm glad to see that. Akhand Bharat says, the Rig Veda describes ayas or iron. This disproves the out of India theory. Well, congratulations, sir. I don't know how it disproves it, but if you think so, very good. All right, let us see what else. Shomadip says there is no letter V in Bengali. So I think the ancient name of Bengal was not Vanga Pradesh, but Banga Pradesh. Please correct me if I'm wrong. See, how lo- how old is the Bengali Bhasha? Vanga Bhasha, how, lo- how old is it? Not more than a thousand years old. Before that, what was spoken in, what was spoken in, this, in this region? It was some older Prakrit language, which was the parent language of of modern Bengali. So the pronunciations would have been different. Before that you had Pali, before that you had Sanskrit. So the original language throughout India was Sanskrit 
5000 years ago there was no bengali language 1500 years ago there was no bengali language right so the names of places change depending on the language depending on the pronunciation usually it's the pronunciation that change so it was vanga pradesh for some reason the, the, this region they somehow the v pronunciation disappeared it became b so if you want to write abhijit you write a v i j i t i know that's how it is because i've been there so you know it's something that has evolved over time so the original name, name was vanga pradesh v not b and before that i think it was called anga because karna was the king of anga so that's how it goes right the myth of saint thomas saint thomas so the myth of saint thomas is that this individual came to india and he was massacred <laughs> not massacred but he was murdered by evil hindus on some mountain in somewhere in southern india and that's why there is a church there now and it, it somehow proves that he came to india look there is no evidence zero not there is not one shred of evidence that this person came to india and there is no evidence that he came to india then and that he was murdered by indians by hindus because hindus were inferior and he, and he was preaching the superior religion and that's why these evil jealous hindus felt insecure and that's why they had to murder him that is the myth that has been propagated worldwide without a single shred of evidence so that is the myth of saint thomas it's a myth it's a lie it's an outright lie outright lie it's a fabrication Hmm. Sumit says, "Did Greeks take astronomy for us from us and give astrology from to us?" So there is this claim I have seen many people make that we have learned astrology or something like that. The 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 zodiac signs etc. from the Greeks. Apparently, we never had that, and we had to learn that from the Greeks. so i have seen no evidence of that it's just claims that people make without evidence uh we our civilization predates the greeks by thousands of years so if any and and we know that we have astronomical records that go back to around 6600 bce the uh, the when the greeks came to the court of the mauryans or came to the court of the chandra of chandragupta maurya our emperor they discovered that we indians had a calendar the saptarshi calendar that dated back to some which which reckoned time from 6600 something bce onwards so that's how old our reckoning of time was and if you have a calendar you have astronomical observations and so on because that's how calendars are made that's how you start uh, keeping track of time and we also have evidence of astronomical observations from northern india which dates back to about 5000 bc or 3000 bc or something like that the the oldest known record of a supernova so we and that also has two so called uh, it has the constellation of orion and some other something else over there so it's clear that we already understood astronomy we already had the concept of constellations and the zodiac signs way before greek civilization was ever born so this is a myth in short 
Chaitanya says, why was India communist for so long? Uh, when was India communist? Did we have a communist constitution? Did we have communist laws? Did we have a communist government? I, I'm not sure what you mean, sir, but uh, India hasn't been communist. India has been socialist. Socialism is a different thing. It's not exactly communism. Uh, you could You could interpret socialism as soft Marxism or soft communism. Communism means everybody lives in a commune. There is no private property. Everything is collectivized. That is communism. So India has never been communist. Avishkar says, why is the Saraswati River not been found? Uh, go to Google Maps. Go to Google Earth. You will see it. You will see the dry riverbed of the Saraswati starting from the Himalayas and going all the way down to the uh, to the Indian Ocean. It has been found. Everyone knows where it is. So uh, if you want to know more details, uh, check out my earlier videos and you will find uh, more information there. What is my view on marriage? Get married. It's a good thing. Um, okay, let me let me revisit this. What's my view on marriage? See, nowadays there is this uh, there is this new uh, view that is being aired that you don't need to get married. Married, have a few live-in relationships. Keep changing your partner every two or three years, like it's fast food, right? Like you change your ideology every few years, and so on and so forth. This is a means of destabilizing society. It's a means of, of uprooting, of, of making people rootless. Because we have a certain culture that uh, considers marriage to be sacred. Not until you get divorced, but it's a, it's a lifelong thing, right? And this is now, inter it is now being reinterpreted as a patriarchal custom. And therefore, the, the woke propaganda or the leftist Marxist propaganda pro propaganda is that marriage is a patriarchal institution. It is something that enslaves women. It is something that turns women into the possession of men. And therefore, we need to uh, do away with this institution of marriage. Right? Have multiple partners um, and so on and so forth. So it is it is a tool that is being used to to make people rootless, especially the youngsters. I'll never get married. I don't want to have kids and so on. So I think it is it is very dangerous for society. Marriage is a good thing. And don't fall for this leftist, Marxist, etc. propaganda. Okay, Dungar Singh Johan says, you have said instead of partition, we should have done a civil war. I have never said we should have done a civil war. Okay. But what's happened in Sri Lanka between Sinhalese and Tamils, which ruined the entire nation? Wouldn't India have suffered that? Okay, so what I have said is that I have not advocated civil war. Uh, what I had observed is that Jinnah threatened that he would unleash a civil war if partition was not done and, and he was not given part Pakistan. So I said that let's compare this with what happened in America, in the United States, in the 1860s, the Civil War. That's when the south of the nation had seceded. There was 
an attempt to partition the nation and Abraham Lincoln preferred going to war than allowing the country to break up. So I said that hypothetically, that was a better solution. So if Jinnah had gone ahead with his threat of carrying out a civil war, I, I said that maybe that was a good solution. Because after independence, after the partition, we are still at war with Pakistan, which is the continuation of the civil war. And today it's a nuclear armed civil war, isn't it? So that's what I had said. So maybe it would have been a good idea that if Jinnah had unleashed the civil war, we should have fought back and defeated those who tried to break our nation and dealt with that problem once and for all. That would have been a better solution than having this prolonged conflict which still festers today and which could someday become a nuclear war. Now, when you speak about Sri Lanka, the civil war that happened between the Sinhalese and the Tamils, the Sinhalese were oppressing the Tamils. They had relegated the Tamils to the status of second-class citizens. That's what happened and that's why there was a civil war and there was a lot of interference from the West. So that is a totally different scenario. That is a completely different scenario. It has no relevance in the, in, in the context of the partition scenario. And when it comes to the LTTE, the LTTE was not a Hindu versus, this civil war was not a Hindu versus Buddhist conflict. Did you, do you even know that Prabhakaran was a converted Christian? He was being manipulated by the West. All the funds, all the arms were coming in from the West, from countries like Norway, etc. This was an attempt to Christianize Sri Lanka. I am not saying that what that the atrocities that were done on the Tamils or on the Sinhalese, anything was good. No war is a bad thing. But this is what the West has been doing in Sri Lanka, in other parts of the world for decades, for centuries. The civil war in Rwanda was perpetrated by the West. It was the West, the, the Catholic Church was the puppet master. They uh, created the conditions that led to this genocide. And the same thing was being done in Sri Lanka by the Norwegians or whoever it was. So Prabhakaran was a converted Christian and the LTT was essentially a tool of the West to, um, to destabilize and Christianize Sri Lanka. So that's what it was. It was a totally different scenario. What happened in Sri Lanka between the Sinhalese and the Tamils was being controlled by the West. They wanted to keep this region under turmoil in order to increase their influence and, and re-engineer the demographics of Sri Lanka. So it has nothing to do with the Indian scenario. Nothing at all. It's a totally different scenario, totally different context. If there was a civil war in India, it would have been started by Jinnah and by the pro-partition supporters, right? That has no, uh, no relevance, I mean, that has no parallels with what happened in Sri Lanka. Okay, so that's the answer to that, sir. Sampriti asks, what's my opinion on banning firecrackers during Diwali? That is just, so that is a symptom of Hindu phobia. The Indian state, the Indian nation is a Hindu phobic apartheid state. Only Hindu customs are being banned under the guise of environmental protection or reducing pollution or whatever. This is nothing but Hindu phobia. Nothing else. The same firecrackers are allowed during other festivals of other religions. Isn't that apartheid? Isn't that double standards? Isn't that relegating Hindus to the st status of second class citizens? 
firecrackers are not banned anywhere else in the world for any other festival but only in india only during diwali we have to resist this so now this time in diwali we saw that bursting firecrackers has been turned into an act of civil disobedience isn't that interesting the simple act of bursting a firecracker is now an act of civil disobedience and this year it was observed that diwali was celebrated with a great deal of vigor and gusto and even people who had not burst firecrackers for firecrackers for a couple of decades made it a point to go out and burst firecrackers so this is the reaction we are seeing to this hinduphobia that is now becoming more and more mainstreamed in india so i think it is an act of hinduphobia if the courts or the government were to ban bursting firecrackers it's nothing but hinduphobia and you know what's happening the fireworks industry is in shivakashi shivakashi in tamil nadu but the people who do that who are involved in this industry are all hindus if you ban firecrackers their industry will get destroyed they will become destitute and then there will be easy targets for conversion to certain other religions that is the long term plan that's why we need to resist this and we need to support this industry one night of bursting firecrackers does nothing to the environment right so that's what i have to say about this rishabh says don't you think indian states should be reorganized the states are nonetheless the same since the british times like like there could be a state called braj bundelkhand bagelkhand in up i think it's a interesting suggestion uh we have states that have been drawn the boundaries have been drawn on on the basis of linguistics it's, it's these are linguistic states now when you draw straight boundaries based on linguist on language and culture we are creating the sense of otherness and certain states are quite small mizoram manipur etc and certain states are enormous up it's bigger than most countries in the world it is such a lopsided situation what i would say is that i'm just saying let's think about this why not reorganize india into a number of small states maybe you could have five tamil states and 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 12 hindi speaking states etc it you know the smaller the unit of governance is the more efficient the governance is so if you have one chief minister for an enormous state like maharashtra or up it is very hard for the chief minister to take care of every single person in that state that chief minister is unreachable when one chief minister is is the head of state for 300 million people but if you have one chief minister for 10 million people it's way way easier for somebody to reach that person and it's way easier for the chief minister to effectively administer that small region so it is certainly something that we should think about reorganize the internal divisions the administrative uh, divisions of india and and make it more equal and more logical you know i'm not saying that we should break up states and and divide people and all that it's just one country there so there's no question of that but or reimagine and reconfigure the administrative divisions that would uh, certainly give better governance and better um better access to government officials 
to the common people so something like that certainly is something we should think about in the long term next 10 20 years i'm sure it would be of significant benefit to the common people of india okay let's take some more questions what do you want to say to those people who question women's clothes in the name of sanatan dharma i mean who is questioning what i am not very sure about uh, who is questioning what about women's clothes in sanatan dharma there is no compulsion or restriction of any kind on the kind of clothes men or women can wear you can wear whatever you choose there is nothing in any book that says you can't wear this or you can't wear that and if some people question something like that i'm sure they are in a big minority india is a very liberal country i mean the real definition of liberalism we we are a very liberal culture we have we have always accepted all everything all kinds of diversity all lifestyles so i don't think there is any big issue like that if some people questions uh, question certain lifestyle choices they should simply be ignored Dheeraj says climate change is getting worse day by day why are world leaders not taking strong action against climate change this is the thing is this yeah i'm not denying climate change climate change is a real thing it is certainly there and a significant portion of that significant component of climate change is mediated by human activity and this began during the so called industrial revolution uh when the western countries started polluting the world uh, in a completely irresponsible fashion and they stole the wealth of asia and africa they enriched themselves and now today asia and africa are trying to catch up and bring themselves back to that level and they will do whatever is required to do that which includes burning coal the western nations burned coal for 2 3 centuries and now they want e- india and china to stop burning coal it doesn't work like that you can't force people to not um uh, develop the nations so this is the conundrum we are facing the real problem in climate change is animal agriculture more than 50% of all pollution all deforestation is because of is caused by animal agriculture the beef industry it is the beef industry that is the major driver of climate change and that is all driven by the west and they refuse to even address this question they refuse to even recognize the fact that the beef industry is the primary driver of climate change globally they want to throw all the blame on india and china and they treat india and china on equal footing when 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 blaming them when china is a far worse polluter than india so you see the problem is that climate change is real it is certainly being driven by human activity but every nation in the current geopolitical scenario in the westphalian world that we live in the westphalian system every nation competes with every other nation and every nation can only do what is best for them because if you try and do something that's best for the world you're going to be left far behind by everybody else and that's why nothing's going to work 
world leaders get together once in a while they set targets 20 30 50 years down the line but they have to do what is best for their country so because we are all divided into these mutually exclusive and highly competitive nations because we treat geopolitics as a zero sum game and we want to do what is best for our country today and because we are unable to reach a consensus that's why nothing is being is being done and there is no progress on climate change there is so much plastic being dumped into the oceans the west is refusing to cut down on the beef industry and so on and so forth and they want to keep on blaming india and china so that's why nothing is happening sad and the problem is that it's going to adversely affect the future generations those who are not yet born they're going to inherit a world that is so much worse than what it is today such a huge population 8 9 10 billion on the planet all all this deforestation all the oceans are choked with plastic and so on and so forth it's going to be bad in the future unless we get our act together but it will not happen unless something changes drastically which i don't see it happening anytime soon how are you we are all very well sir thank you for asking <laughs> what are the dongresses why did russia sell alaska to the us i think i had taken this up in in detail in a previous episode but they sold alaska to the us because they were very much preoccupied with events that were happening in eurasia and because they did not see any benefit that would there would accrue from holding on to alaska at that time alaska was a big piece of wilderness it was so far away from moscow even i mean it was not even sure whether they could have been able to hold on to it or be able to administer it effectively and at that time all the natural resources over there all the mineral resources all the oil had not yet be not yet been discovered and that's why they regarded it as an unimportant as a relatively unimportant piece of territory and what we have to also realize is that there were these conflicts going on the great game between the russian empire and the british empire going on for the control of central asia the russians had lost the crimean war in the middle of the 19th century so they had more pressing issues closer to home and alaska seemed like something that was really far away and it was not really important so they decided to uh sell it to the us and take some cash and 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 acquire some cash in return so it was a very short sighted short term move and the americans gained a lot from that does the multiverse exist the multiverse is pseudoscience there is no evidence for it it's not even science it's it's more like philosophy i mean there is no scientific basis to it because it cannot be proven and it cannot be falsified and therefore there is no evidence that it exists and we will most likely never be able to prove or disprove the existence of universes beyond our own This is a good question Somyadeep Raut says should India leave the commonwealth Well the commonwealth is a collection of nations that were all once ruled by Britain 
So it's a, a collection of former colonies of the UK. And what do we have in common? That we are all mentally colonized. Uh, the question is really this, that what do we benefit from being part of the Commonwealth? And if the criterion of, of for being a member of the Commonwealth is that you were once ruled by the British, then even the US should be a member of the Commonwealth. Because the US was ruled by the British in the past, before the American War of Independence. But the Americans fought for their independence. They defeated the British, kicked them out, and created their own country. And they have chosen not to be a part of the Commonwealth, maybe out of self-respect. And what that tells you is that India lacks a certain degree of self-respect. And that's why we are still a member of the Commonwealth. I mean, the simple question is, what do we gain from being a member of this of this grouping of nations? Is there any actual tangible, tangible benefit for India? If there is any, we should stay within it. Otherwise, we should leave. I mean, there's no real need to be part of a group of losers, of a club of losers, right? So I think it is best that we leave the Commonwealth, but I don't see that happening anytime soon because we are so set in our ways and we want to just continue the so-called traditions as if they are somehow good for us. Kshitij says, should postmodernism and intersectionality be read by every thinking Indian to understand how the West plays with our history. You know, I have in the past tried to understand what postmodernism is. I have tried. I have tried hard. I have never been able to figure out whether there is any logic behind it. It's just word salad. That's it. There is no real theory of postmodernism. Jacques Derrida and Foucault and all these so Michel Foucault and all these so-called French intellectuals who, who created this theory of postmodernism. I have tried to understand what it is. I have simply not succeeded because I understand things when there is some logic behind it. And similarly with intersectionality, everything is intersectional. Come on. So you know what? I think it is best that all intelligent Indians stay away from this. The best way to deal with these attempts to recolonize us or to mentally colonize us is to, is to study our own history, our own philosophy, our own literature and become cognizant of who we really are. That is the best way to combat what the West is doing. And the West, see, postmodernism, intersectionality, and uh, critical race theory, whatever it is, these are newer manifestations of Marxism. That's what it is. You can call them neo-Marxism. So if you want to really understand how societies are divided, how these, uh, how this social engineering is carried out, just try and figure out what Marxism is. Marxism always takes new shapes and new forms. And the latest shapes and forms are all of these, you know, Postmodernism, intersectionality, critical race theory, which is nowadays they are trying to apply it to India as well to create newer and newer and more and more fault lines and divisions within society. So, as long as you can understand the basic thesis of Marxism and how it divides society into classes and then play one class against the other, then you will understand how it works.
Itachi Uchiha says, a claim that there was a pre-Islamic Vedic culture in Arabia. Well, show me the evidence and I will agree. If there is evidence, I will agree to it. If there is a lack of evidence, I'll say we need to find evidence or maybe there is none. So I have personally not seen anything that is definitive proof of Vedic culture in Arabia. There are certain things that are similar to Indian culture. Similar, but not the same. They did have goddesses, they did have polytheism, they did worship uh, stone, uh, they did consider stone idols to be sacred. They did have things that kind of resemble shivlings, etc., etc., etc. But many polytheistic societies have these cultural manifestations. So is it certainly, definitely, definitively Vedic culture? We can't say for sure. Right? It was certainly a polytheistic culture. But there is no uh, conclusive evidence that this was Vedic culture. So I would say that the, the claim is still not proven. Okay, Avishkar says, why is the Saraswati River not being searched? That's because we found it. We know where it is. It's dried out, but we know where the riverbed is. Daudi Bora community. I think the same question is being asked repeatedly. My answer is, I don't know anything about them because I have never bothered to study about them. It's never interested me. My interests are in certain things. I don't, everything in the world doesn't interest me. And therefore, I will tell you honestly and transparently, I don't know much about this community. Okay, let's take some other questions. Hopefully something that has not been answered before. Let me try to find some interesting questions. A. Mazumdar says, Why are we not making web series on our Hindu Puranas and mythological stories just like the Game of Thrones? We have more interesting stories to share the share to the world. By this we can reach out to the masses. You know what? Bollywood has all the money in the world, but they refuse to do that. Like you said, I agree with you 100%. Our stories, our ancient stories are more interesting than any Marvel Universe movie they can make. It is way more interesting than the Game of Thrones. The Mahabharata, the Ramayana, if you could turn them into a series with like say a few seasons with the kind of investment they had in the Game of Thrones, then just imagine how incredibly interesting and, and what a spectacular it would be. And why will they not do it? Because it will then tell Indians how great their past was, how great their culture was. And they don't want Indians to know this. And that's why they will not take up a project such as this. Because it will show to the world how great Indian civilization once was. So that's why it's not being done. So what I would say is that, you know, there are lots of rich people in, in this country, lots of businessmen who don't know where to throw their money. Why can't they take this up? 
I don't understand why they why they why they refuse to take this up. Today we have the technology. We don't need to use Bollywood's people to create a series such as this. But somehow there is a lack of vision, there is a lack of leadership, there is a lack of imagination, and that's why it's not happening. But yes, this is I would call it low hanging fruit. It's right there for the taking, if somebody wants to invest in such a series. Okay, I'm getting the same. I'm seeing the same questions repeated all the time. Ashutosh says, "Does Italy have some secret library to be accessed only by the Pope and his subordinates?" and does it have all of our our stolen knowledge real sanskrit texts there certainly is a secret library in the vatican that is closed off to all to all outsiders only the inner circle in the vatican has access to it we don't know what is there in there so yes there could be some uh, ancient indian knowledge hidden away there that is certainly possible certainly possible the existence of this library is known but it is not open to the public right let's take some more questions kunal says why the shudras were subdued by the brahmins it is a lie it is a neo colonial lie it is a lie that has been created by the british by their missionaries in order to create divisions in india society we it is true that uh, in the post invasion history of india there were all these divisions in society because indian society was not able to function the way it was it had evolved as it was designed to be there were all kinds of restrictions placed upon society by the invaders by the occupiers by the turks and later by the by the europeans and it was in their interest to play one section of india society against another section of indian society make some people richer make some people very poor and then blame the oppressed oppression and all that on indians not on the british for instance for instance uh, many famines were were engineered by the british in india and if you watch certain movies there are certain movies by people like satyajit ray horrible depressing movies they are considered to be masterpieces of indian cinema uh, so there is i remember when i was a kid i watched some movie by satyajit ray it was a black and white movie it dealt with the famine in bengal which the british had engineered and the way they portrayed it was they were satyajit ray was trying to blame the famine on marwaris who had hoarded apparently all the grain so the famine that the british engineered in this movie it was blamed on the marwaris who and it was alleged that they were hoarding grain and, and food stocks and that's why the people of bengal were, were starving that's the kind of portrayal that was done by satyajit ray so this is what's been a recurring theme in the in colonial in post colonial in colonial and post colonial india whether it was during the turkic times or during the european occupation of india that all everything that went wrong in india was blamed on certain sections of indian society and when you want to destroy hinduism 
and replace it with a foreign religion blame those who have been tasked with preserving indian culture so in indian society those who were learned were called brahmins and they were the ones who would uh, carry forward indian culture because they were in charge of preserving it so blame them so that they can be marginalized so that indian culture and all the memories disappear so that's what has that's that's been the colonial project in india especially after the british came to power and they occupied india and today it is taught in our textbooks and all that and we all believe yeah 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 the shudras were subdued by the brahmins the brahmins were the great oppressors hinduism is is now called brahminism apparently this new terminology is now mainstreamed in india's textbooks in india's universities by india's historians who have nothing else to do but to create new divisions in society they will not research india's real history there is so much of india's history which has never been touched by historians they don't want to research it but they want to find new ways of creating of of blaming indians for the oppression that was perpetrated by foreigners so please do not believe this nonsense brahmins did not oppress anybody they did not sub- subdue anybody these four divisions of society were created by the british india was a land of jati and varna which is a very complex system we never had this four category division which the british created all right let me move on from this okay i want to know which nations that exist today like pakistan nepal etc were a part of akhand bharat when you speak about akhand bharat you're talking about uh the indian subcontinent which is the homeland of india's civilization so pakistan was part of it afghanistan was part of it Af- afghanistan was called gandhar in ancient times or uh, nepal was always part of it it was part uh, of india nepal became a separate kingdom during the 19 during the 1700s prithvi narayan shah was the king who created a separate kingdom there in the uh, nevar valley it was later uh, it was later called nepal and again bangladesh is just bengal it's vanga pradesh and similarly sri lanka lanka was also i mean the people are the same ethnicity as us as indians the sinhalese and tamil languages are both indian languages right sinhalese is is classified as an indo european language indo aryan language and so on so all of this was part of what you what you could call akhand bharat and indian civilization extended much further east burma thailand vietnam cambodia laos <clears throat> indonesia malaysia singapore and the philippines all of this was part of india's uh, greater civilization okay let's take some more comments my opinion on sun tzu interesting book uh, the art of war you can certainly uh, learn a lot from the from that uh, book very interesting stratagems especially on how to make yourself invulnerable to attack and then you can once you do that then you can start go on the offensive and that sort of thing so it's a very interesting book uh it is not 100% sure if sun tzu is a historical character maybe it's a collection of ancient wisdom from china's ancient history 
as we know china is about 2 and 1/2 or 3000 years old so maybe it's a collection of ancient chinese wisdom and they have attributed it to a fictional person called sunzu or maybe he is somebody who actually existed we are not sure about that but if this individual actually existed and he had so much experience in warfare then all the warfare that he did was against his own fellow chinese that's also an interesting thing that comes out of this so yes it is a, uh what i know is the book that is supposed to have been authored by this person it's a very interesting book i think it's and it's a very small flimsy book anybody could read that in a few hours but to actually understand and internalize the concepts will take longer it's certainly something that everybody should read and try to learn from okay let's take some more interesting questions deepan bhattacharya says what are my thoughts on swami vivekananda saying that beef eating was not a sin you know what i don't really know what uh, swami vivekananda said or did not say i have not studied his life or his writings or his history honestly speaking i don't know much about uh, about swami vivekananda lots of people say he was a very great person i am sure he was but i am not an authority on swami vivekananda my uh, i have been fascinated with india's ancient history and the big picture history of the world which is why i am so uh, which is why i am able to understand geopolitics and the global context that we are living in i have not been interested in, in very small uh, eras or episodes of indian history and one of the things that i have not studied in depth is the life of swami vivekananda that's why i can't really comment about this with any real authority meera says do god and the concept of reincarnation really exist i don't know i don't know some people claim there is reincarnation and some people claim that some kids uh, exhibit memories from a previous lifetime well i haven't seen any such person personally so from personal experience i say i don't know and it is something that is beyond the uh, beyond the ambit of scientific inquiry this is something that falls in the realm of spirituality it goes beyond science so my simple question is i do not know i don't know uh lipton barua says does mongolia lie in central asia or eastern asia it lies in eastern asia central asia is north and west of india kazakhstan tajikistan kyrgyzstan uzbekistan all of that is central asia mongolia is east of that so one could call it eastern asia okay let's take some more questions karan says you have mentioned about balkanization of pakistan but do you think it can happen really considering the fact that pakistan has nukes is that the reason we haven't taken back pok yet you know any country can can break up whether they have nukes or not it all depends on their internal cohesion and the kind of governance they have and whether the people support the government pakistan has a lot of internal fault lines the pashtuns they owe their allegiance to pashtunistan to the, to the pashtun people to afghanistan actually 
the Sindhis, the real Sindhis, are not at all happy with the Punjabi yoke that they are under. The Balochi people, they are struggling, they are, they are groaning under decades of opp- oppression by the Pakistani army and so on and so forth. So there are so many internal fault lights w- within Pakistan. The people of Kashmir, Pakistan occupied Kashmir, Gilgit Baltistan, they are being marginalized in their own land. Punjabis and Pashtuns are being settled there. So do you think they're happy about it? No, they would rather rather prefer to go back and and reintegrate with India. So it is certainly possible to balkanize Pakistan, provided you engineer, engineer it properly over a certain period of time. Whether they have nukes or not is immaterial. The USSR had nukes. The USSR was balkanized. Well, there you go. Why haven't we taken back PRT yet? Because we still, because in the past we never had the political will to do, the, to do that. We went to war with Pakistan multiple times. Every war was initiated by the Pakistanis. We could have taken back POK in 65, in 71, and even in 1948. But we never had the political will to do that. The nuclear problem came in much later. So I think it's a question of political will, nothing else. I think it can happen in the next 5 to 10 years. We should not wait longer than that. All right. Let's take some other questions. Mother India says, please answer. How can I be a successful person in your life, in my life? Please understand that you are an intelligent person. You are somebody with Everybody is born with intelligence, with curiosity, with good qualities, with some real value. So how to become successful in life is invest in yourself. Give yourself the best chance of succeeding. Right? Uh, Do try and maximize your potential. When you are young, learn everything you can. Learn things that are beyond the syllabus that is taught in school. Learn some actual skills. So uh, try to learn something beyond acquiring degrees. Learn some actual skills like coding or something like that, you know, some real world skills. And in your early adult life, in your uh, 20s, maybe early 30s, try and get as much experience as possible in different jobs, in different industries and so on. And by the time you're in your 30s, mid 30s, you'll start under- making se- uh, be- you're, you'll start being able to understand what the world is really like. So try and acquire as much experience and wisdom as you can by that time. And and that's when you can start giving something back to society. So that is a very, in in very brief, in in a very general sense, uh, kind of roadmap to how to be successful in life. So understand that you have a great deal of value, you have a great deal of talent and qualities, good qualities, and give yourself the best chance of succeeding by doing these things. <laughs> Aditya Singh says, Do you have any theory on the Dyatlov Pass incident in Russia in which about nine hikers died? Yeah, that's an interesting story I had read about long ago. I think it happened in the 1960s, was it? A long time ago. So these hikers went into this, uh, this region in Siberia, some, some pass, and uh, they were camping there in the snow. It was very cold very far away from any major urban uh, urban settlement 
and then they disappeared they did not come back when they were supposed to come back then a search party was sent to find them and they were found all dead all dead all frozen and it looked like something very strange had happened they were wearing very less clothing even though it was freezing outside and some of them had broken bones and things like that so they have never been able to really explain the mystery of how this happened how, why did these people die why did they run out of their tents and go and freeze in in the open and so on and so forth so i don't have any theory it's a very strange mystery some people say that there was some supernatural element involved in this some people have theorized that there was some aliens alien abduction or something that happened some ufo was there or whatever i don't know it's a very interesting mystery and it looks like it has still not been been satisfactorily explained so interesting is there any intelligent civilization before human existence it's possible see because if you look at the uh, geology of the earth because of tectonic activity uh, whatever is part of the surface of the earth it all gets subsumed and it all goes underground within a few 100 million years within half a about half a billion years or so everything that was that is overground gets uh, subsumed under the surface of the earth and new material from under the earth comes out and becomes the surface so if there was a big civilization a successful intelligent civilization let's say a billion years before today all the traces of that would have completely vanished by now and therefore it is certainly possible that there may have been a, a significantly intelligent and successful civilization a billion or maybe even 2 billion years before today that we don't know about and maybe we'll know never know about it is certainly possible uh, i'm not sure what they call this theory but there was some interesting name that people had given to this so yeah yeah it's certainly possible and it's an interesting thing to think about that we know so little about our planet and its past okay do we have any other interesting questions let's see vaibhav says hello from japan arigato arigato hello nice to have you here thanks for thanks for being here uh let's see some more questions okay this is an uh, question that i get often what was the actual amount of wealth that the british drained from india so economists have tried to calculate this and the figure that they have come up with is around 45 trillion dollars in today's money so that is an incredible amount of wealth that was stolen from india and uh, it has been corroborated by multiple economists based on the calculations that, that they've done and on based on the data that we have about what the british stole from india i mean i recently saw some uh, news about uh, a shipwreck was found in the english channel which is which is between uh, britain and france a shipwreck was found it was a ship that was sailing from india to england 
and I think it sank somewhere there. And it had several thousand tons of silver, which was being taken out of India and being transported to England. So just imagine there was just one, one ship out of hundreds that extracted wealth out of India. So the amount of wealth these people have stolen from India is incredible. So the typical figure that people uh, give us, economists have calculated, is about 45 trillion, which is about four or five times uh, the current GDP of the UK, which is incredible. So even if they were to pay it back, they would have to go bankrupt for a few years to pay it back, which they will never do. So that tells you how rich India and how prosperous India was in the past. Chiching says, how can one become an astronaut? I think astronauts are typically chosen from fighter pilots. Uh, There is an astronaut training program which is going on right now because India is in this decade planning to launch uh, astronauts into space. Indian astronauts on an Indian rocket. So I think a number of uh, astronauts are undergoing training right now and these are all fighter pilots. So it, it, uh, it has been found that the people who are successful as fighter pilots have all the physical and mental uh, traits that are suitable for being an astronaut. So that is one way to become an astronaut. You become a fighter pilot. But today, if you look in the US, almost anybody can become an astronaut as long as you are reasonably physically fit. So I think recently, uh, um, what's his name? The the actor who played uh, Captain Kirk in the Star Trek series, he went into space. He's more than 90 years old. So even a 90 plus year old guy can go into space and come back. That happened just a couple of weeks ago. So today, I think anybody can become an astronaut as long as you are physically fit and you have the uh, certain mental traits of uh, you may be, you must you should you should be able to uh, stay confined in a enclosed space for a few hours and that sort of thing as long as as long as you can take that and as long as you are physically fit you can certainly become an astronaut but if you want to join the indian space program which is in its infancy then you need to be a fighter pilot as of today maybe 10 20 years down the line Maybe anybody will be able to go into space. Maybe we will even have space tourism in which civilians can go into space for a few minutes uh, as tourists. So today, you if you are an Indian, if you want to become part of the Indian space program, the manned space flight program, then you need to be a fighter pilot, a test pilot or something like that. In the future, anybody will be able to do that. So that's what I can say. Okay, let's take some more questions. Sonali, I think I have a couple of videos about Sonali. You can check it out. Uh, Yeah, this is a question by Manthan about the Sonali excavations. I have a couple of videos about that. So please check that out. I will take something else right now. Okay.
let's take some interesting questions. I, I am seeing a lot of repeated questions. This is a question by Ismail. What led to the Islamization of Turks? Did it also lead to the downfall of the Abbasid Empire through militarization? This is a very interesting question. So let's let's go back in history and what is the origin of the Turks or the Turkic peoples? Uh, the origin of the Turks is essentially the same as the origin of the Mongol people. They, if you go back about two two and a half thousand years before today, you will find that the Turks and the Mongols were the same people. Their ancestors were the same people. They were called the Hunnic peoples. The Chinese called them the Xionyu people, Xionyu people. And uh, their word for human being was Hun, Hunnu. Even today in the Mongolian language, the word for human is Hunnu. So that is the origin of the Turkic people. They were a polytheistic culture. They worshipped the god, the main, their main god was Tengri. And the, the female counterpart was Umay. I think. And they had a number of other divinities as well. They also had ancestor worship and animism and all that. So that was the original culture of the Turkic people. Now the Turks were nomads. They they lived all across and traveled all across, uh, across Central Asia, Eurasia, all that. And there were multiple Turkic or Hunnic invasions of India in the first century AD. Uh, the Shweta Hunas, the White Huns, the Hephthalites, those were Hunnic or Turkic invaders and some of them were able to uh, successfully conquer certain parts of northern India, present day northern India, present day Afghanistan, etc. And uh, they practiced Hinduism and Buddhism. So they practiced uh, whatever culture they came in contact with. You know That is the trait of polytheistic people. And later on, after the advent of Islam, after the the first and second caliphate uh, became prominent, that's when the Central Asian Turks came in, con in contact with the Arabs and with Islam. And eventually some of them were Islamized. Uh, the mechanics and dynamics of how this happened is kind of lost in time. But it is in the uh, later half of the first millennium AD that the Turkic peoples came in contact with Islam. And slowly, many of them started adopting Islam. There was a time when certain Turkic rulers in northern India, in Afghanistan, actually fought against uh, the, the uh, Islamic invaders. So it's a very interesting scenario. I mean, history is very strange and very interesting. Turks actually defended India <laughs> from Islamic invaders at some point in time. But later, the, 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 the main, uh, the majority of Turks came in contact with Islam. They became Islamized. Um, and if you look at the history of Turkey, the, the, the first Turkic ruler who came into Anatolia was, I believe, Suleiman Shah. And it is not quite sure whether he had converted to Islam by that time or not, or whether he was still practicing uh, the ancestral culture of the Turks. So what I mean to say is that, uh, and even this uh, individual called Irtugrul, 
so now, nowadays there is this very famous very very successful tv series a turkish tv series which portrays ertugrul as um, as a muslim but actually it's it's disputed whether he had converted to islam or whether he even existed for sure so all of this is right is is kind of lost in time you know the origins of the islamization of the turkic people are quite hazy they have not been properly documented but it happened sometime maybe in the late second half of the first millennium ad or the beginnings of the second millennium ad eventually the turks became islamized and they were able to conquer the eastern roman empire the byzantine roman empire and they established the ottoman empire and the last caliphate the ottoman caliphate there so yeah that's what i can say about this but it's a very interesting question Azminor says, can't we develop a program or an algorithm to decrypt Sanskrit and its branches, etc., whatever branches there are, and try to trace it backwards to translate the manuscripts? Like Google, certainly, we can certainly use machine translation, machine learning, and all that to try and uh, make better sense of the linguistics of India, the very incredibly rich linguistics of India. We have so many older languages, the Prakrit languages. We have uh, languages that have gone extinct. We have so many dialects that are still spoken today. We don't quite know what is the um, relationship between the languages of various parts of India with each other and so on. So it is certainly worthwhile to do that. And that's the kind of research that historians and scientists need to be doing instead of trying to find divisions in society or engineer divisions in society. So yes, it certainly is possible. It would need some funding, but you could create some such program in the IITs or something, you know, that would be very interesting. So yes, this is something that I have said, I have spoken about in the past. We could even use such algorithms to try and decrypt the script of the Indus and Saraswati Valley region. So yeah, I hope it happens. I hope the somebody takes it up. Right. Okay. Do we have anything else coming in? Lots of questions. Lots of questions. Shivan says, why in India is thorium plant not still ready? I think India had one of the most advanced thorium reactor programs in the world, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s. After that, I don't know what happened. Uh, it's certainly something that India should take up because the thorium uh, reactors are also very feasible. They would certainly, uh, it certainly works. And India has one of the biggest reserves of thorium in the world. So it would uh, kind of free India from the need to import uranium from other countries if you can build reactors that use thorium as fuel. So I don't know what is the current status right now of the thorium uh, reactor program, but it's something that we should certainly pursue with a great deal of seriousness. All right. 
okay i think that should be it for today it's been nearly 2 hours so i'm going to stop it here all right thank you so much for all your questions it was great fun answering them and let's keep doing this so next week i will have one session that will be based on the comments i will take questions from comments and the other session will be a live chat session like today so that's what we will do next week so for tonight thank you very much for all your questions thank you for watching and i will see you very soon in next week's episode thank you very much and good day goodbye bye